they miss the understanding, okay, what can go wrong? I don't chase stocks, that's not what I'm interested in. So owning a business is the core of what I do. So you invest pretty internationally. Yeah, from an American perspective, pretty internationally, yes. Maybe it's it's kind of embedded this <laughs> this pessimism or or something into, into my being as, a, as an investor. I would say 95% of people should not that are now investing should not be investing because they don't understand what they are doing. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Plain Bagel. I'm your host, Richard Coffin, and we are back again with another interview of sorts. I'm sitting down today with Dr. Sven Carlin. Uh, Sven runs his own YouTube channel here on YouTube, a <laughs> finance YouTuber, uh, with a, a career over a lot of different areas geographically and also in terms of companies. Uh, just from reading online, you can see that he's worked at Bloomberg, he's taught in Amsterdam, but now these days he's running an independently uh, run research platform, shows videos on YouTube to help teach others, and I guess is a competitive spear fisherman <laughs> from, from what you shared with me. I, I didn't know uh, that was a passion of yours. Yeah, I was born next to the Mediterranean Sea, so fishing was always in my blood and it just right. uh, continues there so my my family's from the east coast of canada so same thing there's a lot of fishing over there and i myself am not very good uh, but, <laughs> but i do enjoy it every now and then so. you're better at youtube so i think it's better yeah. <laughs> i i appreciate that um so i wanted to uh, hop on a call with you today and, and uh chat you know to continue uh the kind of the conversation about investing and and hear stories from people with a wide array of backgrounds in the field and you're one of the few people I've ever met with a PhD in finance or investing uh, so I just want to start off uh, before we kind of get into that which I will pick your brain on that side of it uh, why don't you share a bit about your YouTube channel and kind of the videos that you post kind of the topics you cover and that sort of things for people who might not be aware of your channel well, I am. I declare myself as a modern value investor. So we passed the price to book values and price earnings ratio from ratios from Benjamin Graham. So more into good businesses with the moat, margin of safety. So a little bit more modernized. And I post videos on focus on stock analysis, modern value investing, and how does value investing fit the current environment. So we also discuss the Fed, the environment, also if someone asks about the tech stocks and the value investment perspective on that. So for example, to all new viewers, I'm not invested in Tesla or something like that. So it, kind of traditional value investing philosophy, I guess. Slow and steady, let's say. Yeah, and, and I guess to kind of expand on that, could you explain, you mentioned, you call it modern value investing. For people who might not fully understand the differences between growth and value investing, could you explain that, that idea a bit further? So growth is an essential part of value because we look at the future cash flows and if those cash flows are increasing, that's even better, of course, from an investment perspective. Mm -hmm. At first, value investing was, okay, this building was 1 million. If I can buy it for half a million, then I wait for the value to increase to 1 million and then I sell. That is core value investing as Benjamin Graham started it. But now it's more about cash flows. And here is the difference between 
the modern growth investing and normal growth investing. Most growth stocks don't have any cash flows. They are in need of constant capital to just survive and to maintain their business. So there are no cash flows. I also want a growth stock that has cash flows, which means value. And this is the main distinction, I would say. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I think, uh, you know, Oftentimes, and, and you know, I'm, I'm certainly a culprit of this as well, but oftentimes we, we like to label certain stocks as being a growth or a value stock. And you know, typically speaking or traditionally speaking, people would say, well, a value stock doesn't have to be one that's growing, it's just one that's cheap. But you, know, you raise a good point that value investing doesn't mean you technically avoid growth stocks. It just means that you're cognizant of how much you're paying for that growth stock. And, and if you look at Berkshire, it has been growing at 20% per year over the last 50 years and mm -hmm. thus extreme growth, but it's the best value stock out there or it has been for the last 50 years. So value and growth go together. You just need to find growth with a margin of safety. That's then real value investing. Right. Makes sense. Uh, I guess I would lead into the next question of what attracts you about value investing? What is it about value investing versus say um, someone who maybe more speculative approaches to investing? Why uh, value investing over other schools of thought? I think it's a more, on, more about owning. I like to own a business and then receive the benefits that the business produces. Since I was a kid, I would look at the shops, there's real estate selling houses. Oh, if I would own that house, how much would I get from renting it? And the same principle is applied to now owning businesses. So. I don't chase stocks. When I buy something, I don't expect it to go up 50% in the next 12 to 24 months. I like what I buy and I am buying because of that. If the stock price goes lower, I mean even happier because then I can reinvest my dividends and own more of the thing I like. So that's the main difference. Owning a business versus speculating, momentum trading, derivatives, options, whatever there is that's mostly gambling on what, or the greater full theory, what somebody else will pay for the same thing later. That's right. not what I'm interested in. So owning a business is the core of what I do. I think too, it's easy for a lot of beginners and, and for investors as a whole really to look at stocks and think of them as you know just price tags or, or something that its only value to you is is the price that you can buy and sell it for. But you know, if you think about what investing is at its fundamentals, it is like you mentioned owning a business. Uh, it'd be the same as if you were you mentioned going to stores and looking around. That's kind of what investing is, really. You're you're window shopping different businesses and deciding what you want to put your money into, uh, what companies you want to own as as a shareholder. It's not just about oh well, I bought it for fifty and sold it for sixty in a, in a week's time. So that being said, you know, I'm I'm happy to I speak to a lot of people who you know go to different schools of thought. The first person I actually interviewed on the channel was Patrick Boyle, who's a quant investor, uh, which kind of is different from value investing, focuses on factors and, and that kind of aspect of it. And his, uh, his approach is very research intensive. It's, it's a lot of uh, comparing variables and things like that. And I wanted to hop a bit into uh, the research you've done. 
Uh, so you are a you have your PhD, and I was quickly looking. I actually I looked through your uh, the paper that you have published, and it's if I'm not mistaken, it's a risk model on the Croatian stock market. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So I for my PhD, you have to upgrade when you do an academic research, you have to upgrade it on the existent knowledge. So I mm -hmm. said, let's create a model that best describes what happened on the Croatian stock market from 2004 to 2013 when I got my PhD. So it's a short data span, but mm -hmm. it came out to 280,000 data points. And then I analyzed every, every line of accounting statements from 80 companies and tried to develop the best model that explains the risk of investing and the potential reward. And of course, com you compare that to the Fama French model, all the other models that have been already impl uh, implemented and tested, and then you get awarded your PhD. And my PhD showed that the longer term data you check, the better are the results, which is pure value investing. As mm. we say, if you look long term, then your investment results will be in line with the business results. And that is what investing really is. And I think my lines went to explaining 36% of the stock market movements in that period, which was much better than the beta coefficient that explained 5% of that. Right. Yeah, I think um, the beta coefficient is kind of one of the first things you learn in invest. Like if you go to university or, or any sort of program for, for investing, it's one of the first things that's highlighted. And, and for people who don't know, it's, I wouldn't, it's, not a, uh, it's not a correlation variable, but it's sort of, you know, to, to bastardize the definition, it's, it's <laughs> how a stock moves relative to the market. So uh, a lot of people view it as, um, you know, it's a covariance measure, but it has to do with how, uh, you know, if the market is moving a lot and your stock increases by more than the market, you would have a beta over one. If it moves less than the market, it would have a beta under one. Uh, but I think a lot of research has come up against kind of the, the beta coefficient and or at the very least, it's a very limited model. It's it's kind of oversimplifies a complex concept of risk. It it is very beautiful. It's a beautiful academic model, but it mm -hmm. explains less than five percent of the factors impacting stock prices going up and down. And if you look at something that explains less than five percent, it's not really worth much from right. an investing perspective. Even if it's academically methodical, it's really beautiful. Right. <laughs> well, and, and I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with having an academic model. And at the very least, I would say that um, beta coefficients and, and all these other academic models, you have to understand them to understand where we are today with a lot of models and things like that. Uh, but yeah, certainly, you know, in terms of a single variable, it's, it is limited. And, and you brought up FAMA and French as well. Um, could you explain, again, same thing for viewers who aren't familiar with that uh, I believe it's a five-factor model. Uh, it was first the three-factor model, first three, then expanded yeah, and then to five <laughs> yeah. Could you explain a bit about that? So let's focus on the three-factor model, which is the easiest. Sure. So they tested data going back to 1926 till when they did the test. First was till 1998. And they first they said the market is efficient. 
with the beta coefficient and then they said oh yes but if you buy value stock and small stocks your returns will be higher with mm. a little bit more of volatility but long term they have then confirmed that value and size have an impact on long-term uh, returns. So that was the confirmation of value investing that then again changes because then the market focuses on that, then the valuations change, and then you again cannot hold to any kind of models when it comes to investing. Right. That's actually, so that's an interesting point that uh, we discussed with Patrick Boyle too, was the idea that some models as you develop them and as they are published and, and are used their effectiveness actually diminishes over time so it's, it's kind of it's this tricky area you operate <laughs> within where uh you know it's, it's why there's it's a common kind of bit of shared wisdom i guess that you know if you were to find the secret to the stock market you shouldn't tell a soul that's kind of yes. the uh the mentality and the reason the mathematician guy simmons he didn't say he doesn't say what they do and how they did 66 percent over 20 years if right. he would say it around the world then he wouldn't not he would not do it that's simply yeah so. and it would fall to five yeah, percent yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly um so out of curiosity I'd, I'd be interested to pick your brain too about uh so you talk a lot about you your own investments on your channel and how you personally invest um I'd be interested if you could, if you don't mind, kind of diving into what your research process is. You know, you can go as detailed as you like or as general as you like, but just, you know, even at a high level, what's kind of your step A to Z in terms of uh, both from idea generation to actually deciding that you're going to put money into a stock? So I like to take a sector or a country and then simply start researching. I'm now doing uh, every stock traded on the Dutch stock market. And then I just, I think that I need to, to write an article about the business. I need about a few hours. And so I start, I try to write a complete article from a business overview, fundamental analysis and an investment conclusion. It's just an overview, but that gives me an insight. Okay, will I dig deeper or not? Mm. That's now in the process where I, where I am now. And then interesting companies that I really like, I put them on a list of covered stocks. And then I say, okay, every quarter or every two quarters, I'll come back, check what's going on with the business, compare with the stock market, also learn more about the management, get a feeling about what is the market thinking, what the management is thinking, and when the price might be, the stock price might be below what I consider the intrinsic value. And so I go or country. So I, in the last years I did Brazil, Russia, uh, Argentina, ne the Netherlands, uh, and a few other countries or sectors, copper miners, food producers, etc., etc. And so I go country, sector, country, sector. And whenever you dig deep into something like that, you always find here or there something interesting. And that's what I do and that's what I keep doing. So uh, as Buffett says, you start with the ace and you will find a good investment here or there. Right. So you kind of take a top-down approach to some degree in terms of start looking at the countries first and then filtering through is, is that correct i start with okay i i'm not the top down i don't really decide okay i'm going to i start and then i look at everything so it's really bottom up 
So so you 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 look everywhere, but you just you segment where you look at a time kind of thing. But yeah, so it's just easier. So the list is a bit shorter. I don't know. Last year I did every stock traded also on the Austrian stock exchange. So bottom up, everyone, and then from those I looked for investment opportunities. So you invest pretty internationally, <laughs> from the sounds of it. <laughs> yeah, from an American perspective, pretty internationally. Yes. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'd be interested about that because I think, and, and you know, when you look, you speak of Buffett and, and great investors like that, a lot of them, their kind of sentiment is the American economy is, you know, the greatest economy in the world and, and it's very uh, US focused. And, and, you know, I'm as a Canadian, I have no gripes against that. <laughs> I invest in US stocks myself. And I think most people would agree that the American stock market is one of the biggest, most developed and, and to some degree, the safest most stock expensive. market. <laughs> Most expensive too. That's true. And, and kind of to our points earlier, the more people you have focused on one market, the higher those valuations become. You know, it's, it's the same idea and it applies to the stock market as well. Uh, so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts as to, so you kind of touched on it there a bit about U.S. stocks, but... What are your thoughts about investing internationally? Do you think most people are better served looking elsewhere? I think everyone should be investing in what they are comfortable with. Warren Buffett was born mm. in 1930 and enjoyed the 90 greatest years of American economy, the US dollar dominating the world with the reserve currency, with everything. Really, it was the century of the United States. So, of course, mm. and he is based in the United States. So, of course, he is totally for the United States. I was born and raised in Croatia, which was Yugoslavia before that, which was a communist country. So I was born in communism, then had the war, then first started investing when I was 19 in a frontier market. So you have developed markets, emerging markets, and then you have frontier markets that most of our viewers don't even know exist. So uh, right. that was a frontier market and then you start learning and you start seeing and I'm not shy I think of investing also in great uh, American businesses I'm now invested in Facebook for example a little bit in one portfolio I was Berkshire Cisco Intel things like that so not shy of that but I always compare diversify a little bit but if I can find, I know, the S&P 500 with a dividend yield of 2% and I can find something with more value, with 8 9% with more upside, then the decision for me is the 8 9%. I look at mm -hmm. the risk and what can happen in that country and mm -hmm. if nothing happened in the last 25 years, it's not likely that it will happen again in the next 25 and that's okay. Yeah, I think when it comes to international investing, that's probably one thing that deters the most people. It's kind of that that uncertainty. You know, I would say it's it's tough enough to know how to invest domestically, and then you add in kind of that added complication of okay, now you have to learn in what could be argued to be an entire new ecosystem of of rules, language, regulation, language, language barrier. Of, so yeah, and and you know all those sorts of things and and. Uh, you know, it just adds to the complexity of, of what you need to know to invest. And, and you raise a good point of, you know, looking at the risk aspect of, of countries. And uh, <laughs> so I, and I'd be interested to, you know, we could probably have a whole conversation about China specifically. And I know you've actually posted a couple of videos on, on that topic. But it's, it's, if anything else, a good example of, of why it's important to understand, at the very least, to know the risks that you're facing uh, going into countries like that. Um, 
Have you, so I guess my follow-up to that would be, how do you go about familiarizing yourself with different countries? I mean, you're, you, you've lived in multiple places around the world, so that certainly helps compared to, you know, I've, I've barely left Canada throughout my life, so that probably isn't a, a well, beneficial factor. But how do, you, how do you get to a point where you feel comfortable going into a different country in terms of investing? I think one thing is you need really to give it time, and then you can always start with smaller amounts of money. So mm. I have my core portfolio, which has five positions and most of my money is there, 90%. And then I also have right. a large portfolio that has 20 positions. And then I am looking and then I'm putting, so of, I don't know, a few percentage points of my large portfolio, which is less than 1% of my, let's say, stock market portfolio into a company in Cambodia, for example. And then you right. own it and only as Walter Schloss, another great American investor said, only when you own something, you really understand it. Then you own it for six months, you follow it, you start knowing how the management will react to whatever can happen. And then you start really weighing the risk and reward. And then you see if you want to put more money into the country or company, or you say, okay, it's not for me and uh, I'm not gonna touch it anymore, and uh, I lost, okay, because of course, when it comes to investing, you have to always accept total loss, but if you really do good, then the upside is uh, really stellar. So buying the position is almost part of the research process uh, in terms of, or at the very least, in terms of familiarizing yourself with the company. Is Depends that... only on exposure. How, how big will the exposure right. be? Yeah, but I, right. I feel better when I own something, then I really start to knowing and following it. And then I can make maybe five years down the road, a really, really informative decision about something. Right. Makes sense. And it, to that point, it's, it's tough to know everything about any company that you're going into before you make the, the purchase decision, especially when you have something, uh, you know, not to say that opportunities only come once in a lifetime, but let's say you, you see what you believe to be a buying opportunity. Uh, you know, you could argue that there is something to be said for, you know, at the very least getting some exposure uh, and uh, learning through the process. That's not to say you shouldn't research before you make any sort of investment. And, and I think you raise a good point that that exposure is kind of where you need to uh, focus that trade off on. Um, you know, you can certainly buy a position that's a bit riskier that you believe that you stand behind, but being aware of where it sits in your portfolio as a whole and, and how much uh, exposure to take on there and being cognizant of the risks involved with that. Um, as someone who is an independent researcher, so uh, you don't currently work for a financial institution, this is stuff that's self-guided and, and self-managed. Um, with kind of the pandemic and the retail investing boom that we've seen, uh, kind of come up as a result of that. What would be the stage at which you think someone is equipped enough to stock pick themselves as opposed to relying on, on someone else? I think everyone should understand what stock picking is because if we work 40 years for someone else to get money, then at least I would expect that if you work 22 days a month, you should at least spend one day to manage that money. So, and then the key is to understand what stock market investing is. Okay, if I invest in that business, what do I get in return? 
So I can mm -hmm. compare that, in, that fund, that managed solution, that bonds with paying back my student loan, my mortgage, uh, should I better buy a rental property? And then it's about comparing opportunities. And that's, mm -hmm. again, something that the investment market lacks. And then with stocks, I think that every retail investor can focus on 10 businesses, just 10. And if they can understand 10 businesses, that can already make a great portfolio. And you can even buy Berkshire. You have Warren Buffett and company doing everything for you. Right. So uh, that's also a stock picking managed solution. Yeah. And, and so there are definitely companies out there um, where, you know, when you kind of dive into it, they really are a, a financial yeah, sure, a fund, if you will, that it's being managed by a professional team. Uh, you know, you could say there are fees in the sense of their operating expenses, but at the end of the day, it's you have a team managing, in Berkshire Hathaway's case, a, a holding company that is investing in a bunch of different companies, and that in and of itself is diversified. Um, it's interesting to, to hear your thoughts about, and, and maybe it's, <laughs> this is coming from me who, you know, I work in, in on the professional side of it. So there's obviously that bias there, but I've always been very, uh, I don't want to say cynical, cynical is the wrong word, but uh, very skeptical of kind of the, the retail interest in the sense of uh, how much of it will be fleeting, I guess, in the sense that, you know, you have a pandemic where people have more time to focus on stocks and things like that. And I'm always kind of concerned with uh, how many people are sort of quick to put the cart before the horse with buying certain stocks. I would say 95% of people should not, that are now investing, should not be investing because they don't understand what they're doing. And right. that, that will end up ugly. That always ends up ugly. Like we have had with the dot-com bubble, with the other bubbles. So it's always... When a bubble bursts, it's always very, very ugly. And mm -hmm. if people don't know what they are doing with all these specs, buying uh, crazy IPOs, tech companies that have never had revenues or have 50 times revenues, that's just going to most, most likely end very, very ugly. And, and so uh, to follow up on that, what would you say are areas that people should be aware of or... or I, I keep saying educated, but whether it be, you know, you don't have to have a bachelor's per se, but uh, whether it be accounting or, or, you know, market history, what would you say are the things that people, let's say three things that people need to understand about stocks before they even consider, you know, you mentioned a lot of people like to jump into tech stocks. And I think we can both agree that a lot of people who shouldn't be in the market are the ones who, you know, know what the company does, but that's kind of it. Like it, it yeah, stops uh -huh. kind of where... Uh, oh, well, they have a product, I like the product, and that's all I need to know. What are the other things, the other aspects that people need to be aware of when they're buying stocks themselves? I really liked your educational videos about the market and history and what can happen, because that's what I think first people miss. They miss the understanding, okay, what can go wrong? Mm. And that's why the historical examples are really, really important. Okay, this can go wrong also with my money, and that's the first step. Okay, what can go wrong? What sh will I do if I lose my job? I have to mm -hmm. sell my stocks or this or that. And how do I manage that? And that's the first thing that one should educate themselves. So personally, the personal perspective, okay, what can go wrong? And then also check, okay, 
what do I get from investing in the business? I just hope that those investing in those crazy tech stocks know it's a gamble on, on the business, but also on timing so that the business can keep up growing until it all bursts down. So I just hope that they understand the risk and the reward of whatever they do. And if you understand the risk and reward, then everything is easier if the risk materializes and also if the reward materializes. I really like that point about uh, learning about the history of, of stocks because, you know, and, and focusing on the risk side of things first. And uh, admittedly, <laughs> you know, I started posting uh, what I call party pooper videos, which that was kind of the whole intent of those videos was let's at least learn the risks that you face first. And then you can talk about the exciting upside because too often, you know, people focus on the upside and they get excited and then they hop into it and then find out the risks after the fact, after they've happened. Uh, but it's funny, my, so my own interest in stock investing personally actually came from my father who he worked for a company called Nortel Networks. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but they're a Canadian company <laughs> that grew internationally uh, became one of the biggest companies in the world and then and then they crashed and it was during the dot-com bubble so it was kind of tied to that they were a telecommunication company but that telecom bubble is very much tied to the dot-com crash so that's actually what got me interested in, in it and maybe it's it's kind of embedded this <laughs> this pessimism or or something into into my being as a as an investor but uh so, but because of that, all that to say that I've always been really interested in those events and the, that history behind it. And, and I agree that I think if you learn the history of the markets, you can at the very least learn what's gone wrong for other people and then hopefully not repeat it. You know, people say that history has a tendency to repeat itself. Well, you should at the very least try to avoid the obvious things that uh, you've seen happen in the past. Um, so on that note, when it comes to again retail investing, you you run your own research platform, and and you know you could argue that you kind of do so on you know an independent front. What are the the different resources and, and uh, kind of whether it be data sets or whatever that you have access to that you think investors need to have when they're investing themselves? Like what I guess what what would be the base level of, of resources people should set themselves up with worth with researching stocks? Are they fine just focusing on regulatory filings and, and kind of the public information? What what do you find yourself works for you? Well what works for me is of course first time because I do this right. full time so I can do something that a person that has a job can't. And mm. as for data resources, I find the best resources are annual reports and conference calls. Especially mm. conference calls when you cover a sector, then one company, one manager says something that impacts the other company and then you understand better the sector. And if you dig into new entrants into, into the sector, you'll have all the publications in their presentations from all the research companies out there from the McKinsey's, especially if you go with Canada, Canadian mining companies, all those prospectors, they have everything from McKinsey printed in their investment um, presentation. So if you just dig into companies and learn about the businesses, you can find all the data you need to know. I think on the on the professional side, you know, we have tools and things like that for researching companies, but at its core, a lot of that data is just 
dissected from those reports that you're mentioning. Uh, so truly, you know, a lot of people do at the very least have access to that data and it's for free. You know, these are when th something's filed for a regulatory purpose for a public company, it's accessible online for everyone. Um, and actually on that note, I'll, I'll leave resources, to, <laughs> links to, to where you can find such regulatory filings for companies. Uh, but a good point. And, and I think too, I think the, having the patience to go through a, an annual report or something like that, because they, they can be a bit tedious to, to get through. But Of course, I, there are some <laughs> annual reports with 700 pages, which is insane. But uh, over time, you start understanding where to go and what to go. And it's usually the first 20 pages that really good, gives a good explanation of what happened to the business over the last 12 months and what is likely to happen next. And then if you do that for five businesses that are in the same sector, you really have a good picture of the sector. One, man, one CEO says that prices in Canada have been lower or production costs are lower there, then you check the Canadian company, oh look, they have an advantage, and then you really start to understanding the balance of things and also the investment perspective there then, compared of course to the stock prices. Right, I appreciate the Canadian example there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I agree and I think, you know, even uh, most recently the thing you've, you probably see with all these regulatory filings is they're all touching about the COVID-19 pandemic and, and how that's impacted their business. So, you know, these are things that are included in the regulatory filings that you can go through yourself and see. Uh, one thing I, I like too, actually, and this is actually usually one of the longer parts of the report, which is unfortunate, it's a lot of words, but I actually, I, I like to at the very least browse the risk section of, of these filings. So company management uh, will at the very least list all the obvious risks and, and all the the risks that they perceive you face as an investor for the company. Even better, not company management, but the investment bank sponsoring the IPO or something will cover its own ass and you will have all the risks in really, really nice detail. So everything that can go wrong, especially with new IPOs, read the risk because the investment bank has covered its ass there with all the risk explanation. So that's an excellent example. Yeah, that's, that's a good point too. So, <laughs> so at the very least, you know, if nothing else, uh, you know, going through that section, like you mentioned, understanding the risks first. Uh, again, it's usually a pretty long section because they, they go through a, quite a, everything. almost everything they can think of. It's like they, they sit together uh, and they, they just spitball ideas of what could go wrong. But at the very least, it's all written down and, and explained in terms of how they manage that risk and, and your yeah. exposure there that you can have access to. And, and I think, you know, when it comes to reading annual reports and, and you know, quarterly or, or whatever it be releases, and you mentioned uh, transcripts as well, which I think is a good point. I, I think uh, a lot of people from my understanding or from what I've seen, get their information kind of secondary from a, from a news outlet or a news article, but there's really some value in going right to the source because, you know, if you're reading a summary, there's always a chance that that summary will miss something or, or something like that. And also, especially now with online and digitalization, the news is about clicks, is about getting you there mm -hmm. and entertaining you with advertisement. It's not really about the news. It's more about producing as much content as possible, also on YouTube with videos and everything. Really, they force you to do as much to get to those clicks, not to really give 
good news with both sides, one and the other, etc. So that's really why we have to always look for our sources ourselves. That's the best way. That, that, that's, a, that's a really good point. And, and I'll actually, let's, let's pivot to that topic because I'd be interested to hear your thoughts uh, on, on the YouTube space. And, and, you know, we both have YouTube platforms. So I would hope at the very least we can assume <laughs> that, you know, we enjoy YouTube and, and that it's a good platform for some stuff. Uh, but I, I think also with the retail boom, we have seen a, an increase in content uh, that is, is, like you said, sensationalized, you know, trying to uh, convince viewers to click on the on the thumbnail and you know this stock is going to crash or whatever it be and, and things like that how should investors kind of take that information how should investors navigate that sort of content uh and and kind of what are your thoughts on the youtube finance space as a whole well i think from let's say a positive side it's a it's educational so a lot more people know mm -hmm. now about stocks about investing about the stock market about how it works and also if somebody does something shady that will also immediately be even in a few months you will feel okay something is wrong and their channel will slowly go down so you will feel are they selling something to me either fear or sensationalism or are they giving value to me in a way that they do it so that's the main difference and people over time uh, feel it mm. I'm I'm a bit more I'm a bit more cynical myself. I, I think I think some channels can survive doing some pretty <laughs> shady things over time. But I certainly agree that at the very but least, that's just that's was with newsletters twenty years ago. They were sure. would launch fifty newsletters of the fifty. It's uh, statistically that one will have ten great buys one after the other, and then just market that newsletter or something like that and that just keeps on going talking about the hottest stocks talking about the stock went up buying something and then it goes up or something like that so that is has been always there it's not mm. that it is now on youtube it has been there for ever right and that's a good point yeah i suppose it's you don't want to heart too hard on on the youtube platform when it's <laughs> and even you know even when you look at uh uh, news stations and, and kind of the pundits they have come on and, and discuss individual positions. It, it's the same thing. It's, it's people, you know, hot picks and, and my top five and all yeah. these things that over time, you know, you, you do probably see, you know, how much of it is just fluff or, or at the very least just trying to grab your attention. Um, so yeah, that's, 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 that's an interesting point. And I, I always like to, to pick people, I always like to pick YouTubers brains about the, the YouTube finance space, because I, I think it's gotten a lot of love and hate from viewers. And, you know, I, I think some of the, the criticisms are justified and uh, it's, it's a tricky space, I think is, is how I would say it, especially when it comes to things like stock picks and things like that. Uh, so on that point, I, I guess my follow-up would be, how do you think, do you think YouTube is a good medium for learning about stocks and, and to a further extent for stock picks and things like that? I think the biggest danger with YouTube is the YouTube algorithm because it mm. will serve you what you want to watch. So it might not give you mm. an unbiased view of your learning path, but it will give you what you want to watch what you have clicked what you want to know more and it's very easy that it leads you into 
thinking that's very, very, let's say, narrow or biased, so that doesn't give you a broad perspective. So when they ask me, Sven, what will happen? I say always, I don't know. I have no idea about the future. I have no idea what will happen. We can balance the factors and then see about the risk and reward, but I have absolutely no idea where will the stock market go in the next one, three, five years. It might double, it might crash 50%. And that's always, whenever I discuss, I put sometimes sensational titles, crash or this or that, but the answer of the whole video just packaged differently is always invest in businesses that will go, do good no matter what and that you will be happy buying more. And right. that's what I also hope that people get over time from YouTube that as they get burned here and there that at the end they come to it that it is about owning and accumulating businesses. But if we have a 10-year bear market, I think all our channels will be 10% of what they are now. So, oh, probably. Yeah, I yeah. wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I think uh, 2019 to 2020 was a very good time to start a, a YouTube channel. And, and, you know, but like you said, we were in the longest bull run in, in U.S. history. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's will that repeat itself? Well, we'll see over time. But when when I started, I started in 2017 and I was thinking there is really nothing on YouTube. So, uh, why would I share my articles or my research on YouTube? Because nobody will watch it. YouTube is not for finance. So when I started, it was really mm, nobody there. And now it's so hot, everybody's there. So it's really, right. uh, really interesting. This is, this is probably a question for the, for the beginning of the interview, but I, what got you posting on YouTube? What was, what was that motivating factor to start putting videos online? Uh, so I was writing articles and uh, research articles and I was writing them for someone else. And mm -hmm. of course, those were not my articles, so I could not republish them elsewhere. But I asked them, can I make videos on those articles that you publish on your site? And they said yes. And so I started mm -hmm. talking a little bit just to test it YouTube. I, and uh, so it got started getting traction and uh, that's how I continued. Soon right. I quit the article writing and researching for somebody else and did my own. <laughs> and then do it for yourself now. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's like I said, it's, it's funny how, uh, how, like how many stories are, are like that of, of people, you know, having some professional background in the space and then just tip, dipping their toes in, into the online space and then having success, which is, which is good to see. It's, it's nice to see people with, you know, that kind of experience and, and insight to share doing well online. Um, so I, I think we're kind of approaching at the very least the, the 45 minute mark, but before we kind of wrap up the conversation, I would just like to give you an opportunity to share uh, kind of some final tips for investors. Uh, you know, we've talked about a, a lot of things in terms of what investors should look for and things like that. But if you had to, you know, summarize things at a high level to one or two key takeaways for let's say someone who isn't investing themselves yet but is interested in doing so what would those those takeaways be for them i was recently on vacation back in croatia and i met an old friend and he has been a businessman for 35 years 
he has no formal education, just high school. And he said he now accumulated about seven, eight shops, uh, two laundry operations and about 10 apartments over 30 years. So he's rich now. And he said, uh, I don't understand much about numbers. I just know that if I invest in a property, I want my money back in eight years. If it takes longer than eight years, then I'm an idiot. <laughs> and those words, I want my money back in eight, ten years, is something that summarizes for me what investing should be. You should have your investment options and saying, okay, is this investment the business returning me double the value in eight years? And then you see, okay, if everything is expensive now, if it is 10 years, then okay, that's 7.2% per year compounded. And when you start understanding, okay, I'm giving my money in now, when and how am I going to get value on that money? That's the core of investing. Everything else, stock prices is just entertainment for, for the short term gambler that is inherent to our human nature. But investing is just boring, boring, simple. Okay, if I put my money in this, what do I get back from it? And that's it. Right. I, I love that story. That's, <laughs> that's a great story and, and one that, that would stick in your mind. And, and... and immediately it eliminates, if we go to the second tip, it, it eliminates every risky thing. Because, okay, mm. if I put my money there, can I lose everything in five years? If the answer is yes, forget about that. Right. Because if you lose your money, you're left with nothing. You're left with no compounding, with nothing. And that's value investing. First focus on risk. What can go wrong? Do I like if it goes wrong? If no, then you say simply no, you go to something else. And if you don't find anything interesting to invest in, to invest in don't invest in anything. And that's as simple as that. Great. Yeah, good, excellent points to uh, to end on. So Sven, thank you for, for joining me today. Guys, make sure to check out Sven Carlin's channel. It is Value Investing with Sven Carlin, PhD. Uh, he also has a site, svencarlin.com. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to shout out in terms of socials or, or anything you'd like to share with uh, viewers? I think I really enjoyed the chat and uh, you might also, if you're interested more in modern value investing, you can check my book on Amazon just Modern value investing, of course. Awesome. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Sven. And uh, yeah, enjoy your weekend. It was my pleasure. Thank you guys for watching today. Cheers.